0: So from the time I was old enough to understand language, it was all about Eric's gonna be a doctor. He's gonna save and heal lots of people. Everybody's gonna love him. Doctor, 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 you're gonna be a doctor. Everybody's gonna love Dr. Eric. It was all about being a doctor. And it was this heavy, like paternal projection thing. And I really struggled with it because I tried to play along, you know, and please daddy, you know, like every kid wants to be daddy. and um, but at a certain point probably it was like junior high or so i was like yeah i don't think i really want to be a doctor i started getting into music i started getting into all these other things and i just wasn't interested i don't have to feel that it's a calling and i really do believe that medicine is a calling like if you don't feel in your soul that you're supposed to be a doctor don't go into it
1: hello there i'm yonka kamara welcome to kume turning point diaries where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. Today, I'm so excited to have a dear family um, friend and someone who's been an uncle to me for many, many years um, since I was a kid. Um, It's Eric Goldman. I'll be calling him Uncle Eric, and I'm just so excited to have him. He is A man of many, many talents. Um, He is a musician. He is a holistic journalist. He is just intellectual. He's just a lot of things, right? And he has lived a life. And um, I can't wait for him to tell us about this life and the precious stories and intimate lessons he has learned along the way. So let's dig in. Welcome, Uncle Eric.
0: Thank you, dear Yelka. It's it's a real pleasure and thrill and honor for me to, to participate in this. I, I mean, I remember the first day I met you when you, I think I, I remember exactly how old you were, probably about eight or nine or ten when you first came. When you father brought yes, you over. yes, yes. Yeah, and I remember we were hanging out, I was hanging out with your father, and Abdullah Jabate is a great singer, and Mama Jabate is a great choral player, and we we're all hanging out together, and you were a shy little girl, and <laughs> <laughs> now look at you. So I have, you know, just witnessing your, your growing up and your evolution and, and how you've um in a way taking on um the heritage and the culture and the the um, role of storyteller of fina from from the culture from where you came in, in sierra leone and bringing it into this new format here in the modern world with these computers and this mm-hmm. local beach it's really an extraordinary thing and i'm just thrilled to be you know to be able yeah. to participate in this way
1: yeah, and you're a storyteller yourself, so you're a fina, as my dad likes to say, you're a fina yeah, yourself,
0: so. In a manner of speaking, yeah, and I and since we talked about, since we first talked about me coming on the show, I've been thinking a lot about the role of story in my own life and in lives of our cultures, and, you know, story, stories are, are double-edged, I mean, I hate that. know, cliche, double-edged sword, but in a way, it's really true, like a story is a way of organizing experience so that it's meaningful and sensible to oneself and to others, and, you know, that, that can be a liberating thing, and it can be an empowering thing, and it can also be, as we all know, a very disempowering thing, and a misleading thing, so it's, all of that underscores the fact that stories and language are very, very, very powerful, and I think, you know, one of the one of the many dimensions in which your your father Keule and I connected and related is through a recognition of the importance and the power of words and the word and how we use that and how, you know, your father has this wonderful saying, um, the, the deed made word and made deed again, you know, and how like, you know, we tell a story about something that happened either to ourselves or to somebody else or some ancestor in the past, and then it becomes a story which gets disseminated into other people's minds. And then as a result of that story kind of operating in our psyches, we act, we, we manifest, we, we, um, behave as guided by stories. And so the story reiterates itself through acts and deeds. And again, you know, that's, that's got a positive and negative aspect. And and so I think it's a very, very powerful thing. And reflecting about how it plays out in my own life, there's so many different facets to that. I mean, just on on the the basic level of making a living, I make a living as a journalist. So um, I've always worked since I got out of college. my, My livelihood has been around writing, spinning tales, essentially. Now, they're medical tales. They're based in science, which is a whole other... (laughs) <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> how do we know what we know and um, how do we prove things? But in all, that's also storytelling. And so, yeah, in a very direct way, the process of storytelling is, is very intimate to me. And uh, just everything about it, you know, the, the, the culture from which I came, you know, I grew up in a sort of secular, culturally identified Jewish culture. I had a somewhat of a Jewish education, so I learned all the ancient stories and things so, the power of ancestral story is something that 's very close to me, and then through music i mean music and storytelling and singing and poetry, all of those things are very interconnected and you know ancient cultures knew that you know there was a science to poetry there's a science to music um, because the cultures the ancient cultures really understood and respected the power of that um, it 's still powerful it 's just like how, how scientific are we and how we use it nowadays you know <laughs> Um, so, and, I, and I've always been interested in media. I mean, I grew up on television, watching television, you know. And you know, it's both a, of course a good and a bad thing. Um, at the time I grew up, actually, it was interesting. <laughs> I'm the first generation of Sesame Street kids.
1: Oh wow! <coughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was um, about six years old when that uh, show started, and I remember my mother. We had, just, we had just moved from the Bronx, where I was born, up to a little town in Rockland County, which is where I grew up, and. You know, so it was this kind of urban to suburban move. And, and I was, yeah, I was six years old, and my mother says, um, there's this brand new show on TV. It's just starting. It's called Sesame Street. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, check it out. I think you'll like it. And it was, you know, was a six-year-old kid, it was absolutely wonderful, you know. And looking back on it now, um, th- that time period where I grew up, it, it was extraordinary because, I mean, Children's Television Workshop, which is the producers of Sesame Street, they were incredibly progressive. I mean, incredibly, like, you know, in terms of what they were, what they envisioned for children's television and children's education and how they wove issues around civil rights and environmentalism and equality and justice, like social justice, into children's programming without it being preachy. But it was, it was entertaining and it was, it was engaging. It it was really incredible what they were, were doing. And a couple of months ago, I was looking at YouTubes, like old YouTubes, and The musical guests they had on are unbelievable. There's a clip you can see it uh, of Stevie Wonder and his whole band playing "Superstition" on Sesame Street. This is like 1972 or something. He was in the peak of his, you know, soul funk strength. I mean, it was unbelievable. And he plays it for like eight minutes, and the kids on the show are flipping out, and it's just unbelievable. I'm like, this was on public television. This was just. I need
1: to check it out. I need to. You have to
0: check it out. They had Paul Simon on there. They had, I think, they had like Tito Puente on there. They had like unbelievable musical performances, live performances, on this kids' show. And this was also a time where, I mean, you had all these Norman Lear. I don't know if Norman Lear is a name that's familiar to you. He was a television screenwriter, producer, and he produced all these sitcoms like All in the Family and The Jeffersons and Maud and stuff. And they they all had this kind of progressive political. Band. But they were very funny and entertaining. and Everybody watched these things when I was. So there was like a culture of progressivism mixed with a culture of like a lot of racism and conservatism. And this was an era where like a lot of people, like, like either like immigrants or children of immigrants, first generation people, were really striving to make it in America and to get a piece of the middle class suburban dream, you know. And so there's a lot of friction and it was a really interesting time to grow up. the mass media was really the first like I was kind of like the first generation where like everybody had a television pretty much um my parents didn't have tvs growing up it wasn't invented yet and um so that as a medium for storytelling for conveying information on a mass scale um was a very innovative thing so I grew up in this whole mix of like media and I was like from a young age interested in not just what was on the tv but the whole phenomenon of broadcast and how the media Medium itself shapes our consciousness. Like, I don't know if you've ever read any stuff by Marshall McLuhan. He was a media, probably the first media theorist back in the. 50s. I'm not
1: familiar, but I'll, yeah. I'll definitely check it out. <laughs> check it out.
0: Yeah, worth checking out. He was a kind of. I mean, by modern standards, you say he was kind of like a you know sort of white classical academic kind of you could say um, elitist sort of, but. He recognized that the medium. He came up with this phrase: "The medium is the message." That the medium itself is is shaping our consciousness. So it's not so important what's actually on the medium. What's really important is the fact that, like, you've got millions of people all staring at a square or a rectangle box at the same time being broadcast to. That's like shaping how we see the world. And. So those kind of ideas, I got onto them at a pretty young age. And so I've always, even as I've worked in media, I've always been thinking a lot about how does media work, which is actually a really important thing to consider in our current time where there's so much manipulation of people's perspectives and consciousness and um, so much manipulation of language in all kinds of directions right now. And with the internet, information disseminates so quickly. So you know, these are all I don't know. We're rambling here, but kind of just to give you a sense of the kind of stuff that I think about.
1: Yeah, it's important to like know because I think so much of what we um, we become and our interests is, it's it's in there's a context, right? We it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So like um, the one of the um, women I had on the show this past week, who I did a recording with. I was telling her about. Um, an article that I came across a few years ago that was talking about how you shouldn't ask children um, what they want to become. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, ask them what they enjoy because um, children pick up on our facial expression of what they say, reaction, right? So if you say, for example, you are, you know, like you ask the kid, like, what do you want to become? And they say, a doctor oftentimes our face is like oh wow you know what i mean and then if they say something else you know maybe they say i want to be an artist or something you know and like people are like really you know and it's it they register that that that's not good enough right and so we then become very addicted to um doing things right for approval things that will get people to light up right things that will make people think of us in a certain light right and versus really doing things that make us happy right and so many of us are living lives that on on the outside it's happy everything looks great. you have it all together but you're really empty because it's not really what you want right so was there a critical moment um as a kid um you know growing up with sesame street and all of that that made you think like I want to do that, right? I want to tell a story. I want to be an artist. Um, was there any point in your upbringing?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up this thing about about the the question about what do you want to be when you grow up, which is really a projection of the adult mm-hmm. onto the child. That is very very personal for me. And the example that you used of being a doctor is very very personal to me because my father, who was a dentist, he. He wanted to be a physician. He wanted to be a medical doctor, and this is relevant to another, you know, theme that I'm sure we'll get to. But um, at the time he was growing up, he was born in 1929, and at the time of his coming of age, there were still quotas on the number of Jews that they would let into medical schools. A lot of people don't know this, but like, you know, there were there was like a quota system. They didn't want like the the powers that be didn't want a lot of Jews in medicine and law and all that, so they had quotas and through a different, I don't exactly know the whole story, but basically he was shut out of medical school and he ended up going to dental school as a sort of second choice. And it was a very sore point of frustration his whole life. So from the time I was old enough to understand language, it was all about Eric's going to be a doctor. He's going to save and heal lots of people. Everybody's going to love him doctor 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 you're gonna be a doctor everybody's gonna love Dr. Eric it was all about being a doctor and it was this heavy like paternal projection thing and I really struggled with it because I tried to play along you know and please daddy you know like every kid wants to be daddy and um, but at a certain point probably it was like junior high or so I was like yeah I don't think I really want to be a doctor I started getting into music I started getting into all these other things and I just wasn't interested. I don't have to feel that it's a calling. And I really do believe that medicine is a calling. Like, if you don't feel in your soul that you're supposed to be a doctor, don't go into it, especially nowadays, because it's a brutal profession in terms of, you know, how you're treated, what you have to go through to get there, and then like, what the system is like for doctors nowadays. It's not the house on the hill like it used to be, you know, the the old did. So anyway, so I, I really struggled with this question of what's authentic to myself, and there were certain moments like when I started really listening to music and taking it seriously as a listener, as a fan, realizing, I don't know, there's, you know, there's a surface level to music, but then there's all this, these deeper levels about what really got on music. I'm like, that's, that's, that's it for me. That's what gives meaning. Um, but I was really discouraged from even considering a career in music. Um, and I remember like I got into the guitar, I started playing when i was around 15 and by 17 it was like pretty much an obsession and i remember at one point my father taking me aside and saying son you know it's very nice that you have this wonderful hobby and it's great that you love music um but keep in mind that that's not what's going to get you into medical school he was still like on this tip this, this intention that you kid are going to medical school and so i went to college with all this kind of conflicting like supposed to do this but I really want to do that and then you know I ended up double majoring in philosophy and biology because I was interested in science but in a more sort of general systems way I wasn't really into the specifics and I didn't really want to be a doctor or a researcher um, so I was kind of trying to balance this like science thing and the humanities thing because it seemed to me that science without humanities and without philosophy is dangerous and you know, philosophy and, philosophy and humanities without practical applications is you could say masturbatory or, you know, it, it becomes just a, an echo chamber. Um, so the idea of like having, having all those things, and by the way, I was also playing music and learning music and I was a radio DJ, um, late night radio DJ on the college station. So I was trying to like do it all, you know, like why can't you do it all? Um, which <laughs> has kind of always been my MO is like trying to do all these different things in different fields. And it was always kind of a, a, a struggle for me like, what is really my own? What is my own thing? And then the, the decision to go into journalism, medical journalism as a career, was a bit of a practical one. Like, I, you know, and I remember, like, I think it was my junior year when I realized, like, no, I'm, you know, I'm not taking the NCATS, I'm not going to go to medical school. And I had to call my father and tell him that. And, and how did he
1: react? What was his reaction? He was
0: very cold. He was very, very, he was. It was just very, very cold. And I mean, he said, well, you know, you have to do what you have to do. But it was very clear he was disappointed. And then talk about like like strange moments. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but like when I started working in medical journalism, so this is probably like late 80s. I, I was assigned, or maybe early nineties. I, I was assigned to do a story that involved going up to NYU Medical Center. And so I was walking the, hallways in the hospital there and at the time I was about 10 years out of college so um and I saw a doc a young guy my age who was like you know a resident or whatever and I was looking at him and thinking like that could have been me had I you know gone with the program and I looked and I said you know, I am so glad I didn't do that I don't exactly know what I'm doing in my life but I know I'm not doing that and I'm really glad because I would have been miserable and I remember Did the
1: person look miserable? Was there something about the person's the appearance way, that so made you feel as if, like, I don't want to look the way he looks right now?
0: Exactly. It was the whole, he was. He looked tired and burnt out and, ha- ha, like, hassled. And the whole environment of a hospital is, like, kind of awful in a way. Like, the lighting is terrible the, the hallways have that weird antiseptic smell and, and everything feels very tense and contracted and just, like, not an environment where someone like me would thrive. And... That was the first time I felt like, yeah, I made a really right decision for myself, in not going to medical school. And, uh, and sometime after that, I had a conversation with my father about it. I don't know how we got on it, but you know, I told him that I said, you know, I saw this young doc and, I, and uh, it made me realize that I really was glad I didn't. Go to school. He said, well, I don't know, you would have made a very fine doctor, and I still think it would have been a good career for you. Sure. He just never, to his side down, if he ever. Let go of his own attachment to being a physician and by extension his desire for me to be a physician. I don't think he ever really recognized that. And you know, it was a sore point because we, you know, we had a very strained relationship about other things too, but I think that was a part of it. I just didn't fulfill his projection. And and so that's the thing about stories. You know, if your self-worth is tied up in the story of being something like your friend, whatever his is it him or her her, her career.
1: It's a she, it's she, Yeah, it's a she. whatever her career
0: path was that she was really identified with and her whole self-worth is tied up in that, or, you know, it's so common, you know, and then how people project that onto their children, what the children are supposed to be. So, you know, tying back to what, what you had said, were well, you know, were there moments where um, there was some revelation about what I am and I'm not here for. Yeah, there were these kind of moments where, um, you know, I. I I was aware that you know there was this pressure that came from a, a set of values my father had about what, what was a good and rightful career. And pretty much anything outside that was not good. So art, music, all that stuff is like very nice as a hobby, very nice to kind of as a, like a sort of a diversion application kind of thing, but don't you dare take it seriously. And yet, if you really boil it all down, music is... It's like my north star. Like the most important things I've learned in life, and the most important connections I've made in life were through music, including meeting your father, and becoming you know friends and brothers with your father, and your family. That all happened because of music, and particularly African music. I, I got into that. Um, let's see, in the in the like when I in the in the late seventies, there were all these kind of white new wave bands. Um, in particular, there's a group called the Talking Heads, which you may have heard. They had a couple of pretty big hits. And yeah. <laughs> I was a huge, huge fan. And in like 1979 and 1980, they were starting to play around with rhythms that they were learning from like Fela Kuti records and um, King Sonny Ade records, like stuff from Nigeria and from other parts of West Africa. And there was something about the texture of that music that really turned me on. And I was reading all these interviews with them
1: and they were saying, oh yeah,
0: yeah, well, we listened to Fela Kuti and you know, listened to uh, Ebenezer Obi or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, I need to check that out. And so then when I got to college, we had a very amazing radio station with this giant record library and they had all this you know, music from all over the world. And so I really went into the African music rabbit hole, you could say, and just like went deeper and deeper and deeper and I got, Real into it, and so by the time I got out of college four years later, like that was pretty much ninety percent of what I was listening to was West African music. And then um, when I got to New York, you know, I came right out of school and started working medical journalism and into the city, and I was flipping through the Village Voice. Some of you might remember the Village Voice as a you know, free newspaper. Yeah.
1: it
0: was. It was kind of especially before the internet. It was where you learned what was going on in town and like who's playing where. and what the cultural currents were. And it was a little ad for this, like African drum and dance camp up in Ashokan, you know, up in say New York. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know, what, 22 or something, 23. I'm like, that sounds like a pretty fun way to spend a weekend. So I, I registered for it and I went up there and that's where I met your father. And I met Kevin Nathaniel and I met like a bunch of people who still, you know.
1: My whole gang. <laughs>
0: yeah, the whole gang and that led to like, you know, I was going to like Leslie Dance and Skate for African dance classes two or three times a week, and
1: you know, just really
0: immersing myself in, in the world of, of music and dance from, from African countries and the African diaspora, which made me, the process of that really made me challenge and question a lot of what I had been taught, like the stories that I had been given culture that I came from you know like all the like all of that came into question as a result of you know being in situations where like I was not the majority I was not the dominant like you know when I stepped in Leslie and skate like you know the, the, the white suburban world or the semi you know the urban world that I grew up like I that wasn't the dominant culture anymore like I was in a different space and I had to learn how to respect and, and realize like there's just people have different ways of doing things and different approaches and my job here is to like be quiet and learn, you know, like just learn and, and understand and what I could to, to the extent that I could understand. And um, just let, let that in and let that shape shape me. But it was a process, you know, like any, anybody who, you know, if you try to learn something new, um, sooner or later, if you're, if you're earnest, if you really love it and want, want to learn it, you're forced. To look at all the things in yourself that get in the way of that. So for me, that was that was a process which is still ongoing, you know. I don't think that ever stops. Um, and then and there were there were many moments along that process which were really kind of turning points. And one of them that really stands out to me was was with your father. Um, because I was getting deeper and deeper into this, and and he and Jelly Suso, Salio Suso, were, were starting to teach me like some of the deeper things that are underneath just the music. Because I was relating to it as like music but in, you know I could feel there was something underneath it but I, of course I, I couldn't know what it was and so they started explaining to me like what is the role of a jelly, and when you have a society where people need to depend on one another you know for for you know just the basics of life as well as cultural continuity um, the role that music and poetry and storytelling can play in creating social harmony, that there was like a, there there is a science to this, that that's part of the responsibility of being a musician or an artist uh, or, or a poet or a storyteller is, is understanding the power of these arts or sciences and using them to create coherence within, within your, Society so that people can get along and work work things out and make things happen and I was like wow You know, this is such a different way of looking at art because in our culture Art has just become about like self-expression You just say what you want to say you do what you want to do and I want to do it this way So fuck it. I'm just gonna do it and there's almost an idea that like art artists aren't supposed to be responsible You know and you hear this from artists like well, you know, I just tell it like it is I, You know people can interpret it whatever the way they want and I'm not responsible for that and I get that, and I hear that, but at the same time, like, yes, you are responsible, because if if you are in a role of, where people are listening to you, and you're putting yourself in that role, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And what are you doing with that? And so, to me, you know, when when, when saw you and, and, and that were telling me these kinds of things like the, the, like you guys had worked all this stuff out thousands of years ago <laughs> oh, I was like Whoa. Um, it was really really mind-blowing it really changed my outlook on like what what do I think art is and 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 I remember one point this is this is the nut of it where, where because at a certain point I had kind of like a little bit of a freakout I'm like yeah, I'm this white Jewish guy from New York why am I so into this why like what what's going on here it was like you know like I supposed to be so I was like African stuff why am I,
1: you know and at one why did point, you why did you think you had so much guilt around um you liking that music
0: well it was, a, it was I don't know if it was it was not so much guilt it was more like wh- wh- where where do I fit with this because I knew I wasn't African and I couldn't like you know I wasn't Mandang and I, I could never like fake it or you know like pretend like I was and um and what Where does this place me, you know, as an individual, as as, as a person? Um, And what does it mean? Why am I so into this culture? When, I mean, the culture I come from is very, very rich and has stories and music and all that. I wasn't at that time in my life, I wasn't so interested in stuff of my own heritage. I mean, I never disavowed it or anything, but I wasn't like, like deeply delving into that. But I was deeply delving into Julia and um. So there were there was a kind of like a hmm, what does this what does this mean? Where am I going with this? What? And your father, you know, he's a very sensitive man, and he picked up on it. And one point, he kind of put his arm around me, and he, and he said, "Look, and, you know, I, I think I'd said like I don't know why I'm so into your your culture and your music." He said, "Well, you don't understand why you're so into your your culture and music, but I understand why you're so into my culture and music." And he said reason you love this music so much is because you are like us. And he said, back home, the people who are into this are people who are like you. They think about the same things you think about. They, they're concerned with the same things. They like to do the same kind of things you like to do. You're like us. And that was a real life-changing moment in this, in, in, on many levels, because he, he, it's like he gave me permission to love what I was already loving, but kind of struggling with like, why do I love this? And and, and he was also saying, don't worry about it. You have a place here. Yeah, okay, you're the white guy, you're the Jewish guy, but that, that's, that doesn't matter. The point is you love this, and that's why you're here, and you love us, and that's why you love you. that's why you're here so don't like you you don't have to fret about any of the stuff that's kind of going on in your head that's that's just all bullshit really love it because you love it and we love it because we love it and so it was a really liberating moment there
1: more about the connection right um because i think one of the things i've also been learning um about finaya right which is you know um so Finas um, Finas are a lineage of poets and oral historians, um, as you know, tasked with saying the most difficult thing that needs to be said in a society. And for me, for a long time, I li- I took that lineage <laughs> meaning like literal, I and mean, like and and in some contexts it is right. So it's like my dad comes from that, so therefore I am automatically considered a Finamusu, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then he was like, there are people who are adopted into it as well, right? Because they, because that's what they're calling it, right? So, like, even one of my favorite West African musicians, Salif Keita, right? Based on his last name, he's not supposed to be Mm -hmm. a Lee. He's not supposed to be an artist. You know, he's supposed, like, based on the society, he was, he has a last name of a ruling class. You know, that's what, you know, he comes from the lineage of um, Sunjeta, right? And he's Mm -hmm. not supposed to be an artist, but he is, you know? So it's like, those things and so he kind of becomes like an adopted Jimmy, right um mm-hmm. so i think it's it's like a beautiful reminder that you will encounter people who are that and like and you should give them that name if they want to you know it's because mm-hmm. if they were in that society that's what they would be right mm-hmm. um and and i think it's important to understand that and um that difference because i think sometimes it gets confused with um cultural appropriation so right. So it's like really about understanding um, and yeah, yeah, not just taking it and saying that like, this is yours now, right? <laughs> without right, right. fully and, understanding.
0: And, and, yeah. And I was, I, I, you know, through that, 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 that set of questions around cultural appropriation or, um, yeah, I, I've, I, I've asked and continue to ask those questions of myself, you know, all through and as a musician, as a guitar player, you know, particularly, because I, at, at the time, when I was getting to know your, your father and your family, and It's All You, and Mamadou and those guys, I was trying to learn and adapt, you know, the, the music from the Korah and from the Bala on, onto guitar and learn from other, you know, West African guitar players. And I was kind of getting into it. And at a certain point, I remember, like, consciously realizing, like, to really, really master this as a, as a style of music as a, is, is like a lifelong thing. And I will never be Abdelai at that level. You know, I will never be a guitar player on the level of any of the West African guitar players because I don't, don't come, like, I wasn't hearing that music from from whom, you know? Um, so, and and you know, there are um, American white, you know, European, Guitar players or other musicians who've gotten really into it and have tried to make it their style, to varying degrees, and some of them are very, very good. But for me, that felt that didn't fit, that that f- wasn't a road I wanted to take. I, I wanted to understand how the rhythms were together, so that I could sort of like find my own vocabulary with it. Where I, you know, if people hear me play, they, if they if they know West African music, they'll hear that there's that I've listened to a lot of that and and absorbed some of it, but. I never wanted to be like the white West African guitar player. You know what I mean? Like that, that wasn't just, um, but if I could, um, how do I want to say like like weave together aspects of that with other, other streams of music that I also love very much and bring it back into context of, you know, the, the Jewish culture that I come from and, you know, sort of bring these things together in a way that reflects the different facets of myself. That may not be authentic culture to anybody else. Like you can't say it's this or it's that, but it's an authentic expression of my search and my journey. And um, so I feel like from that perspective, it's, it's honest, you know, and, but I'm aware of the questions of appropriation and imitation and exoticism. And this, this was a big thing in the, in the 80s and the 90s in the music world, because they had all these people doing world music you know, which basically meant like a white singer songwriter hearing stuff he or she liked in another place and going like, wow, let's see if I can like, you know, add and a little profit,
1: bit. And, and then profit from it <laughs> and <laughs> and and then profit. a lot more <laughs> than, you know, the traditional indigenous yeah. artists.
0: Yeah, and, and some were, were more willing to share the wealth than others. Um, yeah, absolutely. And some were more willing to give credit than others um, to sources from which they took their, their, their music. Um, but then, you know, that's also the nature of the process of music. People, you know, like, I, I think, I forget who said it. There probably several people said it. But, like, somebody said that that um, a good artist imitates, a great artist steals. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sort of an ironic statement. But, in a way, it's true, like, like um, there's all, all through the history of music, there's examples where, you know, somebody took something lesser known and made it very popular. Um, and I don't think it's, I mean, there's a particular way it played out in like American and European you know music commerce, cultural commerce, but I don't think it's unique. I think it's like musicians are always doing that. It's like you know, somebody goes to a wedding in the next village over and here's a clarinet player from, you know, over the other side of the mountains and goes like, wow. That's a really cool style. I'm going to see if I can steal that and bring it. You know, and then they become the person in their region that does that, and they get things worked. So, I, to some extent, appropriation is the just the way culture spreads. But I feel like it's it's like how it's done, and I don't know. Like, what, what's the difference between borrowing or learning from versus appropriation? And I think there is like a very gray area and a very fine line there. Um, Like, you know- Well, for me,
1: I think it's, when I think about it, it's, it's not only about acknowledging and understanding, but it's really about the value that's put on based on who then is using that medium or who then is whatever, right? It's like, so it's like a hair, for example. You know, hairstyle like black women do a hairstyle It's not considered whatever trendy or whatever. It's not considered um, acceptable, right? It's like um, there's still certain states where our hair in our natural form or braids are not allowed, right? Yeah, it's they make a it. For school, exactly.
0: Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly, but then you could have these celebrities and um, models on runway, white models on runway, do it, and like then it becomes this trend. You know and it becomes this cool thing when we've been doing it forever and like there's no acknowledgement and it's 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 then becomes like they just found this like right it's like totally yeah. like erasure <laughs> you know yeah. they're like hairstyles is like every like it, almost like every other month there's something with one of the fashion magazines um um publishing something about a new hair a new hairstyle and mm-hmm. it's, and it's new because it's on a white person but it's yeah. like this is not new, you know, and this is black people have been doing it for many, many years. You don't acknowledge yeah. it. And now you're going to profit from, from this. And now you're yeah. going to, it's going to have value, right. Cultural right. value. So yeah. I think that's, that's for me, what, um, I get at for, for that.
0: Yeah. I And I hear that. And I think the the, the issue, part of the issue here is that when when a white person or you know white band or white artist wants to use cultural language or you know cultural signifiers from from black culture are they also including the black people or are they just taking the stuff it's like hey wow you've got really cool clothes you've got really cool hairstyles we're gonna run with that but like we don't actually care what happens to you and i feel like that's that's a big part of the the difference It's like like do you do you respect the people who create the culture, or do you just want the culture for you know as like seasoning for your own life? You know, so it's it's really about the again this gets into the issue of uh, commodification and commerce around culture Um, because people are always borrowing styles from one another, but when, yeah, when somebody suddenly gets very, very rich from a a design, a clothing designer style or, you know, a hairstyle that other people have been doing for a long time and they say, oh yeah, this is my new creation, that's very, very problematic. So yeah, I mean, these are definitely things that um, I've thought about throughout my life and... you know, plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, And then the journey, the journey kind of continued because at a certain point, um, I did start to, you know, it took a long arc of like, you know, exploring music of West Africa, different parts of Africa. And then I started getting into Middle Eastern and Mediterranean music, um, which led me closer to the, the, Cultural origins I come from, which is, you know, Eastern Europe, Jewish culture and Jewish culture in, in general. I mean, I I never entirely, you know, I never totally left it, but I didn't engage it really. And then it was like about 12 or 13 years ago, I started to feel kind of a pull toward
1: trying to make a sense
0: and reconcile myself and like my place within that culture. And so that was a journey too, like discovering just because there was, you know, what I thought I knew about the culture I came from and then there was like all this stuff that I really didn't know. Um, and like any other culture, when we use these terms like, oh, African or European or, you know, Jewish or Islamic or whatever, but we're actually talking about very, very diverse ecosystems, culturally, ethnically, um, linguistically, um, and then there's, you know, socioeconomic issues within each of these realms. So again, you know, this is this thing of storytelling makes things very simple. I can say like, oh, Africa. And we're talking, we think, we think we know what we're talking about. But in reality, this is like a continent with like how many different languages and different cultures. And and so so Africa or Europe or America is really a construct. It's a story. That. Again, it's helpful for organizing information, but it obscures the complexity of of situations. So, for example, like using my own culture, like when when in in New York and America in general, when you say Jewish, people tend to think of European, like Eastern European and German and Polish Jewish people. But that's like one, just like one bandwidth of the, of the spectrum of Jewish culture. You, ha- you have Jews from Arab countries who look Arabic, you know, and when they speak Hebrew or, or pray in Hebrew, it sounds way more like Arabic than it does like the Hebrew that I learned. And they don't speak Yiddish, and they don't eat lox on bagels because that's not part of the culture. They come from, from Arabic Then you have people, Jewish people that came from Iran and Iraq, Persia, you know, um, and Turkey. And their culture is very different from Eastern European Jewish culture. Then you have Jewish people that came from Yemen. Then you have Jewish people that came from Ethiopia and, and you know parts parts of Africa. Then you have Jewish people that came from West Africa, the Ig- Igbo, some of them believe that their roots are from the ancient Jews. All of this is the spectrum, but we, it gets very simplified. And there's a lot of dialogue within the, the Jewish community Particularly the res Jewish community about what is the role uh, like like h- how do we become more inclusive of the non-ashkenazi non Eastern European Jewish cultures because there's you know there's fault lines there too and, and so you know again it, it's complexity and I'm sure like similar kinds of situations happen in, in I mean I, I, I saw this you know when I when I was hanging out a lot with your father and, and deep into the African, the West African thing that, um, you know, there's all kinds of subdivisions within that, even, even from people from the same country, the same region, you know, because you had that sort of, you know, your family is supposed to be this and our family is supposed to be that. And, you know, there's all these things. So this stuff is actually very complex in terms of how it shapes us as individuals, but the, there's a ten, like one, one tendency of storytelling is to simplify it and to make symbols and archetypes of things. Um, and that's useful and important and necessary. And it also needs to be challenged all the time because it's too simplified and then too exclusionary. And so what do you do about a Salif Keita who's like, well, I know I'm, I'm supposed to sit on the, the throne and the singers are supposed to sing to me, but actually I want to be the singer. you know? And what do you do with this? You know this Eric Goldman, who's you know like supposed to be a doctor, but he actually wants to be a you know musician. So, how are so, stories?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 so interesting because I think that the more that we look at our individual stories, we can see moments of that struggle, right? Um, and for me, um, I'm coming, I'm learning that you know what makes us so beautiful is really that process right Mm -hmm. that process of um what i'll say like coming out of the cocoon right it's a struggle right the you know the caterpillar coming you know the butterfly coming out it's a struggle it's a real struggle and so it's that struggle it's really us finding for ourselves um what it is that we that really resonates with us and who we really are right so you know you are uh, a white jewish man right um but the the kind of um ideology and um ways of thinking and living right resonated more with an african cultural you know um, structure right um and i think it's we should give ourselves permission to understand that we can fit in that without saying that i'm this person like now i'm like right you know right. Saying, like i'm a trans west african person right but you can say you know this that way that structure speaks to me right mm. that structure you know speaks to me and they can be a west african person who feels you know very limited in that structure right mm. for them they might feel as if like I don't, like maybe for Salikita Keita growing up, you know, I don't know too much about his biography, but maybe it was probably a structure. Um, he was,
0: he was, yeah. he was sent away. They
1: didn't yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Al- I know, mean, so, so he had a lot of things, but also like, again, because he was in that sh- culture supposed Mm -hmm. to be one thing and not supposed to be this it's a and now he's a a very celebrated artist like he's one of our faves right (laughs) he's like everybody says i was like whoa right but if he if he hadn't pushed back on that right and if he hadn't really um done what spoke to him Mm -hmm. we would have never seen this his beauty Right, And yeah, his beauty, I mean, it's just like his artistry, right? That we love so much, right?
0: And this is, this is the classic, you know, the stone that the builder refused shall be the head cornerstone. This a very famous, biblical um, formulation. And, you know, of course, Bob Marley um, put that in, in, actually he said it in several of his songs. Um, and that's, that's an important thing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the outcast. That becomes, and actually, you know, if you want to look at it in the in the biblical sense and a Quranic sense, I mean, I don't exactly know how the story of Abraham or Ibrahim is told in the Quran, but in the in the Torah version of it, he was an outcast. He was sent, you know, like he hears a call from God saying, "Leave your father's land, go where I'm going to lead you," and he doesn't know where he's going to go. He doesn't have any idea. He just knows that he has to leave his father's universe and go and he's led through the desert and all these different things happen. But, you know, I think there's that archetype. And um, Salif, you could say, is a sort of a modern expression of that because, I, yeah, he was outcast for many reasons, being a wanting to be a singer, all of that. And he had to struggle, um, you know. And, and through that, the, the, in, in a way you could say, like, he's one of the strongest expressions of the jelly culture even though he wasn't supposed to do it, right? <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's because of people like him becoming popular that people like me found out about this whole world. So it's very interesting how our fates are all kind of interconnected. And I want to, since I mentioned Marley, I, I, I say that he was a very important figure uh, in many of our lives. You know, he really, really was. And certainly my own life was shaped by him. Um, Like his his music spoke on a very deep level. And I I was in high school when I first started hearing him. It was alluring. You know, it it was very like, you know, the music is wonderful. And it was also a little bit scary too, because, you know, he you know part of the thing about like listening to west african music is i didn't understand the language you know and i don't know what they're singing about I mean, I read the little translations on the you know the album notes but they don't really tell you what they're saying but with marley like i knew what he was saying you know and he was saying that you know there's this system that's like like fucking us and you know really making a mess of things and as a young person i realized like yeah and i'm part of that system and you know like my my prosperity in America is exactly what he's singing about. So it was like, what do I do with this? And so the music was, was very engaging and the message was very sort of empowering and threatening at the same time. And it was a wake up, you know, really like Marley's stuff. If, if, if you listen to it beyond like, you know, one love, one heart, you know, the kind of, if you listen to the more heavier songs, the more rustic songs, as a white person, it's going to raise a lot of questions. Um And questions that I, I take on and, and struggle with and still, you know, it, it's not, like I say, it's not, this is not a finished, it's not like you just like answer the questions and, you know, write the essay and you're done. Like this is a lifelong process, um, particularly with re- regard to racism and race relations and all that, which were, you know, at the time, again, at the time that I grew up, I was like the first generation of where they, where they were doing like integrated schools and busing. You know, that's how probably heard that term busing, you know, like so they were busing black kids into our school in our neighborhood because they wanted. Where to was travel.
1: where was your neighborhood? Um, this was in
0: Rockland County. It's a it's a it's a town called Spring Valley, and even though there was no official segregation, there was economic segregation, you know, and and so there were areas where it was predominantly like black and. There where areas were predominantly white, and so they were trying to equalize the educational opportunities, so they were, they never bused white kids to the black school, black area school, but they bussed black kids to the white area school.
1: Yeah, it just shows um, you,
0: <laughs> right? But, I mean, I, I don't know if that's universally true, but I, I think it was pretty true. I
1: think um, it was only that, it was only, yeah, it was well, a one-way exchange. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the, the schools were better. But the point is, like this was an ex- like a, a social experiment, really, like to, to do this. And as a kid, it was just like, well, this is this is school. This is what happens. It was only as I got older that I started to realize the context and the and the, the heavy politics that were going on. And what was really unique, and I really want to you know um, honor her. We we had our our principal was a woman named Arlene Clink, Arlene Klinkscale, who was among the very first. African-American principals in a public school system and again this I, I you know I started on elementary school in 1969 and Mrs. Klinkscale was just Mrs. Klinkscale and, and she had a very strong presence I remember she just there was something just sort of quiet but you knew that when she said something you better listen because she was really really serious and she had very high standards. she really expected a lot of us. As students and she expected a lot of her teachers and there was a lot of progressive stuff going on in the school at the time which I thought was just normal like of course everybody gets to in school but no it was because of her and because of what she had been through and what she wanted us to understand as kids um, and there was another there was one, another woman named Ethel Bone Moses who was actually an African American Jew she was Star of David and so again, you know, like people who were really challenging the cultural norms of the day, but doing it in a very natural way. Just our teachers, and um, we were learning a lot about civil rights because it was all happening right around that time. And, and um, we were learning about ecology, and we watched the moonshot. We watched the you know they had like one big like TV, and they, they had it set up in the lunchroom, and we watched this like moon landing stuff. But, <laughs> all these things were happening, and. And at the same time, there was, in the in the cultural mix around me, around us, there was a lot of racism. You know, because like I say, you know, our, our parents were scrambling to get a piece of the dream, and so it was kind of like this mixed messaging thing of like, you know, school is teaching us tolerance, but um, outside of school, there was a lot of racism, and we were aware of it, but in a sort of unconscious, childlike way. Um and so i I feel like it's it's a lifelong process i mean i do believe you know people say this in the in discourse about race racial issues in america that like anybody who grew up in america is racist and a lot of people have a reaction to that but i believe that's true that fundamentally that's true because the base the basic economics of culture founded on racism racist ideologies and slavery and you can't get around that, you know. It's, it was just a basic fact of like what America, how America operated and continues to operate. So, growing up in it, you're just you're just absorbing it. Even if you had really progressive parents and you went to a really progressive school, the fact that 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 non-racism or anti-racism is considered a progressive thing, it's a special thing, tells you that racism is the norm, and and so like it's. You know, I don't, I don't take offense when people say that. I think it's, it's just true. And so it's like, how do, how do we work with that in our own lives? Because, you know, there's there a lot of different degrees and aspects of racism. And, you know, one thing that it's easy for a lot of white people to forget is that many of us who are now considered white, weren't always considered white. You know, certainly us as, as Jewish people, I mean, yeah, our skin color is white, but in terms of how we did or didn't fit into America, we were not considered white for a long time. And even still, we the degree to which we are considered white is proportionate to the degree to which we are not visibly manifesting Jewishness. So for me, it's not a thing. I'm, I, I'm white. But if I were to be wearing the black suit and the long curly pace and I had a long beard down to my and I was wearing a yarmulke all the time, people would react very differently to me. Because I'm manifesting culturally in a very, very different way. And Irish people weren't white. You know, they were like definitely second tier white. And Italian people were not white. Greek people, like Southern Europeans were not. You know, there was like quotas, immigration quotas in the late 1800s, early 1900s, for people from certain of these countries, which were considered Lower, lower races, you know, yeah, they were European, but not, not really. Um, yeah, we can use them, we'll use them as labor, we'll use them as contractors, whatever, but we're not wanna really let them into the country club. So it's easy to forget that, and what this does, you know, it creates this situation where people are fighting each other to get a little piece of the scraps from the table. And then this just perpetuates this system of racism, which which we see so so horribly playing out right now. So I feel like you know, like every like we really all have to look at this and how how it, pl- it plays in our own lives and how we perpetuate it because we do, whether we're conscious of it or not, um, in various ways we do. It's-
1: the stories we tell, right? I think that's the key thing for me. Um, Is really about stories even like the stories of reminding people the stories of how people became white right how certain um nationalities became white in this country right because if they if people understand that you know i think they will i would hope would take a stand right <laughs> um because it's like you becoming white was at the expense of black people right and so it's like you right. have to and you were at one point also at the bottom, you know, maybe not at the, right. the bottom, bottom, like, like, but you were also at the bottom. And well, so many well, were. I mean, you know, yeah. like
0: we talk about immigrants, like my, my grandfather, my father's father came over here literally with nothing. I mean, he, the story was that, you know, this was in the early part of the. T- 1900s and you know at the time in the small villages in Russia and Poland and places like that at any given time the the you know the, like they, they call them the Cossacks would come through and just slaughter people like they call them pogroms they would just you know come in and burn a village kill people rape the women whatever they wanted to do um, in the Jewish communities and so many Jews came over here at that time including the father's father who was like he was like 17 or 18 years old and he, he had gone to do some kind of errand and he came back to his village. And you know, everybody, you know, lots of people were dead. His parents were dead, and, and he destroyed them. so he just kind of hit the road and he managed to work his way somehow across Russia into, into Europe. He ended up in England and working coal yards for a while to make enough money to buy a ticket to, to Boston where he had like some distant relative. Basically, he was poor all his life. He died at like 60. I never met him, he died um, years before I was born. Um, you know, poor all his life, barely was able to, he was like a junk man. And so the idea that like, you know, all Jewish people or all immigrants get rich, some do, and some don't. But, and those are stories that also need to people. There's plenty, plenty of people from all ethnicities who are poor, who are oppressed. It's, it's a different kind of oppression because it didn't have the slavery aspect for 300 years. So it's not comparable. But it also like, you know, like it, all of it has to be included. It's all, it's all part of the same kind of systems. Oppression. We talk about like systematic oppression. It's you know it's all of these things. How how immigrants are treated. Um, So I don't I don't I don't remember exactly the thread for how we got on this.
1: Um, We were just talking about the the need to tell stories, right, and the importance of telling stories and telling so that people know, right? Because I think um, one of the I've been posting. You you follow our page, Just, our mm-hmm. podcast page <laughs> page on Instagram, and so um, I try to post a lot of quotes related to storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't posted this quote yet, but I came across it, and it said, "People hear statistics, but people feel stories."
0: Yes. Right, yeah, and so,
1: it. so it's 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 a beautiful reminder that we need to like you can say all these statistics of how many like. Um, how many immigrants are um, don't achieve that American dream who are also you know, oppressed and whatnot. And, but it's, they need to tell those stories, right? Yeah, and and how, so- And
0: it's important to recognize how, especially like in, in my father's generation, how immigrants got their, you know, their mm-hmm. stamp of approval and how they got a piece of the dream, so to speak, yeah. it's because the military, my father joined the army when he was 17 because that was the only way a poor immigrant kid was going to go to college, and that's still true in many, you know, many communities. The only way you're going to get the money to go to college is if you join the army. So you you, you have and, to and you
1: money. survive, <laughs> and you survive,
0: and but that's the point. is like you have to quote pay your dues to be an American by like being in the army, and and that was true certainly for that whole generation of World War II and British World War II immigrant children, like, the you know, the only way in was to be part of the military. Um, that's, uh, no, that's not universally true. Of course, there's stories of people who just, you know, started businesses and did very well and got rich or whatever, but for many of them, it's like you had to, you know, you got the GI Bill, which lets you go to a college, and then you get into one of the professions to get a piece of the middle But what I, what I want to convey is that to the extent that these stories and these frameworks help us become more human, mm. we're good. They're helpful. To the extent that they create violence and division and reinforce violence and division, they need to be challenged. And sometimes it's the same story that needs to be challenged. And it's also empowering. And we have to acknowledge the the, the, the different valences that a story can have. This requires a lot of reflection and meditation and Unfortunately, I feel like we live in a culture that devalues that, generally speaking. You know, everything is very reactive and it's all about inflammation, it's all about inflaming. Um, Even if the inflammation is righteous, it's still, you know, like it it, it can, righteous indignation can turn dangerous very quickly as we've seen, you know, countless times over, you know, so many movements that started out as very progressive, very revolutionary, end up becoming just like, a new version of the same old thing and so yeah I, I feel like it, this is like this is a lifelong process that all of us need to engage in hearing listening and understanding our own the stories that we've received and questioning them in an honest but also loving way. I mean you know this comes up a lot in the progressive Jewish community of people who are sort of attracted to, to the tradition, but don't like a lot, or you know, don't accept a lot of the racist, sexist, um, archaic aspects of it. So, what do we do with those parts? Because you know, if you re- if you read any of these scriptures, whether it's the Torah or the Quran or the New Testament or whatever, you're going to run into stuff that's like going to make your just king crawl, right? Um, so, do we just edit that out and throw it away and say, okay, well, we're we're that you know, we're not done with that, or do we leave it in and skip over those parts or Do we reinterpret it in a way that makes us more comfortable or do we allow ourselves to be discomforted knowing that these are books that are full of information about how our ancestors were and what they were about and what their values are and some of it may be helpful to us now and some of it may be very harmful to us now Um, and how to have honest how, does, how, to have, how to have honest dialogues about that in our own communities, and then across community, um, you know, inter-community d- discussions. Without it being discussions, like I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of the relationship between and African American communities, African diaspora communities, and the Jewish American and Jewish diaspora communities. Um, it seems right now there's a lot, of, a lot of tension and a lot of bad relations within the communities, it wasn't always so. And certainly in the in the in the civil rights movement, fifties and the sixties, certainly in the sixties, there there was a lot of participation of Jewish people, including some Orthodox, like long beard, black hat guys, in the movement. And that those those alliances got fractured over time. Partly because of economic dynamics, partly, but partly I think that was engineered too, you know, um, from from outside. It's to the powers that be. Like Jewish people and, and African people got together. That's a very big, powerful, loading block. Um, so I've I've been wondering and pondering about how what, what could we do to bring some healing to that without create, doing lectures and stuff, you know? Because I think I think that doesn't really work. Um, You know, how to do it in a way that just creates the right environment for natural connections to happen. And I don't know the answer to that, but it is something that I'm giving a lot of thought and energy and attention to because, honestly, it pains me to see this this division and the lack of understanding across those community lines when there really could be a lot of understanding. so, yeah, I don't know, just, I, I have no, no no answer, no, no vision, no, no plan, but, um, you know, it's something that, especially over this summer, as, as the LM movement has, has expanded and become um, such a part of our day-to-day consciousness now, and, um, and also, you know, over the last couple of years, since, it's always been going on, but certainly since the Trump administration, there's been a lot more violence toward Jewish people religious, non-religious, all across the board, there's been a lot of violence toward our communities um, in the last few years, which is deeply troubling. And as the son, you know, my mother came over during World War II as a refugee, as a, as a little young girl. She was probably about, you. She was about the age you were when you came over she was probably nine or 10 when she got here. Um, you know, that that Holocaust experience is deep in my marrow. and. When I see these reports from Portland of like unar you know, un- unidentified, like no power, like no military units operating in unmarked cars, just like arresting people and taking them away in the night, like you know, this puts the chills up the spine. Of, obviously, shouldn't put the chills up the spine of anybody, but it brings up a very particular kind of trauma for those of us whose background comes from the Holocaust. Experience. Because that's how it starts, you know, that's how it starts. You've got like a kind of dictatorial leader who considers himself above the law. You've got a whole a system of sycophants who will just do his bidding. And then you've got these sort of unauthorized, militarized enforcement units that do shit like this. So, you know, all this is very, very much on my mind. So, you know, again, no, no simple answers, but I feel like there's some kind of healing work that needs to be done around this. And obviously stories, you know, the stories we have about ourselves and our own cultures and the stories we have about each other's are, I, I believe, like, exploring that would be a key.
1: I, I I totally agree. I don't have the answers either, right? And um, but one way i'm trying to explore that is through stories and bringing awareness to our personal stories because our personal stories reveal so much about our worldview right and what we've been indoctrinated right and um and our personal journeys can also be a testimony to how much we have challenged and pushed back on um, mm-hmm. the narratives that we have inherited right mm-hmm. and so and so i think by just creating this platform um, where people can really share um, muted but meaningful experiences, right? It it can really help with, like you said before, help with us to listen, um, to empathize, you know? So like somebody, you know, of your background, your cultural background, telling that story, it resonates with, you know, like you said, that's how it starts, right? And hope and ultimately like recognize our common humanity right so it's like if that's how it starts you know if we don't address it now look what it could be right and so that's how we have to constantly be able to tell stories and be and remind people how things start
0: right right? and and one of the things that i feel like it's very that that the blm movement is really bringing front and center that i feel like it's very important for white people to understand particularly you know, for Jewish people to understand is that the the experience of African people in America has been like 300 years of this. Like, this is nothing new. 400 years. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Police forces taking you away in the night and beating the shit out of you and, you know, and killing you. Like, like, this is, this may be news for white America, but this is, this has been like, yeah, like the constant background experience of of black people in America. and. I don't think most of us as white people really understands the extent of that. There's this thing of like, oh yeah, well, slavery was 100 years ago, you should be over it. And, and it's like, it really bothers me when Jewish people say that, because I'm like, if we're still talking about the Holocaust, and we're not over that, and I, I have to tell you that the you know, Jewish community is definitely not over it. there's still like generations of, you know, healing that has to be done around, around that. Um, you know, if we're still talking about the Holocaust, and that's a central experience in our cultural identity, what do you think 400 years of that does to people? And and it didn't stop like in 1945, the Holocaust stopped. You know, like this stuff is still ongoing, as as the George Floyd murder, the murder of George Floyd shows us so clearly. It's like white cops still think that they can just kill black people with impunity, and we we, we need to really understand that's the the, the holocaust and and i know some jewish people really get offended when black people use the term holocaust as if there's like some competition about suffering about about oppression like you know who's the most oppressed people
1: yeah it's the (laughs) like oppressive what is that oppression olympics
0: oppression olympics yeah 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 and it's 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 ridiculous because all of this is oppression and it's it's all part of the same thing and we have to be able to I feel. I mean, who might have to say we have to? But like, I feel. I, I see that connection, and I think many many Jewish people, many, women, and especially if their parents, if their their heritage comes from, you know, oppression or poverty or something like that, we get it on some level. We want to get it necessarily, but we get it. But but some people like like they close off to that. They just can't accept that your suffering is the same as mine. And and. Your loss of your ancestors is not any different than my loss of my ancestors. I mean, the truth is, I don't know anything about my mother's. I, I know a little bit about my mother's parents. I don't know really anything about my, my mother's grandparents. I never met them. Any like like my mother's father had brothers and had a family in Poland. I don't. I, I know nothing about them. I don't even know their names. And I know nothing about my father's father's family. Russia. Uh, I know a few names, but nothing about what did they do for a living, who were they, how long were they living in Russia, how, nothing. It was all wiped out. And and it's the same for, for black people who were brought over here from, from African cultures who were who cut off and who, you know, like the loss is so huge. And, and for us to, for us as people who've been through so much loss, not to recognize the commonality and not to not be able to see it and feel it and relate to it, and then try and unlearn all the ways that we have perpetuated those kind of systems. I th- I think it's it's a you know it's more it's like a moral I feel like it's a moral imperative for us as Jewish people especially you know as Jewish people who, who pass as white and you know who have been you know part of the, the white affluence of post-war period. We we have to take this on. We have to take it seriously. And um, you know, and I also think there's an imperative like in the progressive community to rethink some of the beliefs about Jewish people, which I see and hear and, and I see things posted and I'm like, you know, you gotta be you kidding know, when you're starting to like, you know, push the protocols of the elders of Zion stuff, so that's a like Nazis. And it's like, you know, you know, you, you, you want to criticize the actions of the state of Israel, okay. You know, I hear that, and I get it, and I emphasize that, too. But, you know, when, you, when you're starting to get into the, like, you know, the Jews control the world conspiracy thing, the Jews are our enemy thing, and I'm not you know, it's not all progressives, and all black people, but I've seen it from the progressive camps, you know, including from some friends of mine, and I'm like, whoa, you know, where, where is this going? Um, and if you read historical accounts of what happened in Germany in the, the late 20s and the 30s, a lot of the same kind of currents were swirling around and you know so I, I feel like it's very very important for all of us wherever we are and whoever we are whatever our backgrounds are we really like be you know checking our received wisdoms about like how things are and who we are and who the other people
1: are so yeah this is important work to do before we end can you do you can you share a critical moment in your medical journalism
0: career? Um, there, I would say there were several critical moments in my medical journalism career. Um, the, I guess, you know, I, the story I'd want to tell around that is the, the founding of the publication called Holistic Primary Care, which I started 20 years ago with my partner, Meg Sinclair. At the time we were, we were a couple and started the business, now we we're a business partner, just a family. Um, each other for many many years. You know You've met. Um. So when I first got out of school, I was working. At, actually, at a dermatology magazine, you know, magazine for dermatologists, and and then I worked for several other publications, all within conventional medicine and like drugs and surgery and you know pharmaceutical-sponsored stuff. And I wasn't particularly interested in that kind of medicine, and I was much more interested in health. And Nutrition and meditation and all that stuff, and I had this question: like, why don't doctors learn anything about health? Because my part of my job as a journalist was to go to all these medical conferences where they learn about what's happening in the fields, and I was like, all of this stuff is about like treating disease with drugs or like new procedures or new devices. None of it is about actual health, and a lot of the doctors themselves didn't look healthy. And I was like, why aren't they learning about health? They're healthcare practitioners. They should be healthy. And it was a question that came so often in the holistic movement, like in my circles, was like very popular. Most of my friends were into um, some form of holistic health care. And I was like, well, how can doctors not know about this stuff? Why isn't there a publication about that stuff? How come? You know, and it was just this idea that kept kept coming and kept coming. And I was working in very conventional settings. And feeling like an alien, and, like I go to these medical conferences and I'm like, oh no, they're going to find out that I don't believe in this stuff and they're going to throw me out and then I'm going to lose my job and then what am I going to do? And, um, I really felt like an imposter. So I was writing my stuff I really didn't believe in. You know, I mean, I do believe drugs and surgery and those kind of things have a place, but that shouldn't be the bread and butter of f- Um So again, this idea just kept like knocking on the back of my head. Hey, like, you know, there should be a publication about holistic medicine for doctors it kept coming and going, coming and going. I didn't think I was, I wasn't a businessman. I I didn't think I would be the person to start it. Um, But when Meg and I were living together in the the 90s, um, living together in this loft on third street, and the idea kept coming. And at one point she said, look, you know, you're pretty miserable at your job. um, And you have this idea. I think it's a really good idea. Let's do it. I said, what do you mean, let's do it? And she said, well, let's do it, you know, we figure out how to do it. And so we sort of talked ourselves into actually launching it. Um, And in retrospect, you know, the fact that the idea kept coming to me, even though I didn't consider myself someone who could do something like that, the idea chose me. And I, I feel like there's something about that in each of our lives where like there's a certain theme or a certain idea that knocks on your door and it's knocking on your door. Whatever, whatever it is that knocks on your door is your thing, and love it or hate it or every emotion in between, it's knocking on your door. So for me, this idea about why isn't there a publication about holistic medicine for doctors um, was something that was just knocking on my door, and you know, at a certain point, you know, through the, the catalyst, you know, the catalyst was Meg saying, "Hey, you know, I think we should do it." So she picked up on something that this is this is something that wants to happen in the world, and it's coming to you, so you have to answer this. Um, Because I don't know if I would have done it on my own. Maybe, you know, maybe different circumstances, I would have, but she was the one who said, no, this is, you know, this is your fate not in here. And I think there are these things for for many of us, not for all of us, like, something that just keeps coming, and you either respond to it or you don't, or you sort of respond or you dance around with it for many years until, like, you you either take it on or it takes you on. and you know, and so we launched it, and it's been twenty years now. And I've gone through every spectrum of feeling about it. You know, sometimes I've loved it, sometimes I've hated it, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm staying up late at night working on articles, wondering like, does this make any difference in the world? Like, am I what, am I just banging my head against the wall? Um, and in many ways, it's frustrating because I feel like the conversation in healthcare, even though it has changed, it really hasn't changed that much. And the COVID thing, I've got to talk about COVID, right? You know. It, it's showing us so clearly what's wrong with our healthcare system. And any of us who were working in healthcare twenty years or thirty years ago, like, like these same things were wrong back then, and we didn't deal with it. Why aren't we dealing with it? Why won't we deal with the realities of our situation? So that aspect is frustrating. But on the on the other hand, I do see that many, many more people, including many doctors, are now accepting holistic ideas and and herbal medicine and things like that. Things that were really, really left field. They're really like way out in the, you know, very far from the mainstream when we started Holistic primary care. So I do feel like there has been some progress. And I guess it's just like that with long movements and long arcs over time. Like it, you know, it, it, it takes time and all I can do is keep doing my part. So, yeah, so there was that moment of re- reckoning with like, this idea is coming to you, dude, not anybody else. Like, it's it's picked you it's kind of like a cat like you know like when you have a cat it's like you may think you're choosing the cat but really actually the cat is choosing you the cat doesn't want to be your cat it's never going to be that but if the cat does want to be your cat there's not much you can do about it
1: (laughs) unless you're terrified of cats because i'm terrified of cats so (laughs) there's no cat choosing me (laughs) and i'm not choosing them (laughs) You say that now, but
0: you never know what the future is. Mm,
1: no, I'm like, it's it's so bad. That's like one of my things on my dating apps. Oh, really? It's yeah. one of the first questions I ask on a date. Wow. Um, oh. I don't want to cat my future. <laughs> <laughs> we won't
0: make it up yet. Anyways, yeah, that's, yeah, and you know, and within over the course of my career, there have been you know many different things that I've covered that have been you know, turning points or, you know, but I would say, like, fundamentally, that was the thing, was realizing that part of my job was to take what I learned from conventional medicine and writing about conventional medicine and creating something new for the holistic thing, which in a way is like, like, it goes back to everything we've been talking about, like, something about my nature is that I like to be between worlds. So, in my career, I'm sort of between the holistic medical world and the mainstream medical a lot of our readers are mainstream doctors writing like, alternative content. So again, you know, there's this thing of like between worlds, and then you know, culturally, musically, I've always been between worlds, and you know, the thing trying to balance science with philosophy and philosophy with science—that's like between worlds. So for whatever reason, my spirit, my soul, they situates me my life in, in between. And you know, sometimes that's beautiful, and sometimes it's very painful. And but it is my life, and so stand with it.
1: And well, you've lived a a good life. You know, you (laughs) you've lived a life um, rich with stories and experiences, right? So uh,
0: a lot of really great people in it. Yeah, always grateful. So
1: yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think we can end here. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I I really hope that we can all connect again. I think my mom yeah. is gonna probably do something. Yeah, let's
0: organize that. I would love to do that. And, yeah. And, and Yelka, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's really been a pleasure and honor. And I don't think I've really ever told my story in, like this in public. So it's, I tend to be kind of a private person. So this is a big deal. And, and, yeah, and yeah. I can't think of anyone I would rather, <laughs>
1: yeah, so. Well, thank you for trusting my platform to do it. Yes. I've been I've been overwhelmed and in a good way by how many people have just offered to mm-hmm. to come on or people that have asked. They're like, yeah, I'll come on and tell their tell my story, and and I've just been so blown away by by how genuine that they are in telling mm-hmm. and how honest and raw. And you you think about it, it's like. There's some. Sometimes you think about your own story, and you like you. I don't want to say cringe, but you like ashamed parts of it, right? Mm-hmm. But when you hear other people tell their story, and you realize you recognize, you know, the similarities with your story, you're like, no, I shouldn't be ashamed of that aspect of my right. story, right? There's so much I've learned from that experience, right? Yeah. So, it's it's very liberating, um, to to say to say what you've been through right and and to have others validate it you know and and just validate it so by by just listening and also for them by then them also empathizing and seeing themselves in your story
0: yeah and that's the real power of this well thank you
1: so much thank you thank you hey y'all thank you for tuning in please remember to subscribe leave a review and share the episode be sure to also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Turning Point Diaries. Kume, until next time. Film music by Exile Dynamics featuring more box.